This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Just a brief, perfunctory introduction to this episode during this very abnormal time. This episode includes an interview with Mark Russell, the author of the comic book Second Coming, which is a sort of fictional telling of Jesus coming to Earth and rooming with a Superman-type character. It's a really great uh, conversation, and I hope that given the sort of environment that we all find ourselves in and a sense of just worry and uncertainty, that you can find a little bit of distraction and something within this conversation. Um, It's really hard to, you know, preface this or, or... have anything wise or right to say in a moment like this um, feels very uncharted for for most people and all I can say is that whether you are uh, practicing social distancing or self-isolating because you are exhibiting symptoms but haven't been tested or if you are sick please take care of yourself and those in your life do what you can to be kind and compassionate to others. Do what you can to help others that need it, that might be immunocompromised. Do that uh, wisely and safely. Listen to your local municipalities and follow the instructions of your employers and others that are trying to give you guidance at a time when there's really no guidance to speak of coming from our federal government or this administration. Um, it's a tragic, but we're all doing what we can to help one another. Um, If you need some sort of online community, we do have a large community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash exvangelical. You can just apply there and and find some community if you uh, have not joined that group yet. Again, everyone, just please uh, take care of yourselves and and those uh, within your immediate sphere. This is such an odd time, and we're all sort of learning on our feet. I do want to thank people who have been great examples online of trying to lift up those in need, trying to keep things light or to acclimate to this new environment in which we in which we're all living when there are school closures and offices um, moving to remote work as well as they can. Um, That includes people like Caitlin Curtis, who has put up a lot of really meaningful threads on Twitter and elsewhere on uh, Instagram, and people like Andre Henry, who are reminding us that uh, that hope is something to strive for and that Things like this um, present opportunities to examine what is valuable in our culture and what deserves to be preserved. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I hope that you all um, are well, and if you are not well, that you are getting the care that you need. I know it seems silly to say things like this, but sure, you can follow me on Twitter at brchastain, um, on Instagram at brchastain underscore. You can like the show over at facebook.com slash exvangelicalpod, and you can sign up for my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, over at postevangelicalpost.com. Um, that'll be it. I mean, it's not so much promotion as just if you want to follow me or reach out to me during this time, please do. Um, we're doing what is best for our family here, uh, in Chicago. And I hope that wherever you are, that you are doing what you need as well. All right, everyone be well, enjoy this conversation. I hope that it gives you, uh, some sense of, of comfort or or normalcy to to listen to this or any other podcasts or content that uh, is comforting to you um, or is part of your 
consumption habits or whatever uh, during during normal times. I'm thankful for you all. Welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me today a return guest, Mark Russell. He is the author of the book Second Coming, as well as many other comics, including the Flintstones, Wonder Twins, Red Sonia, and many others, as well as the book God is Disappointed in You, and also author of the upcoming book Billionaire Island. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Thanks. Thanks for joining me. Um, congratulations on the first volume of second coming just reaching reaching press and and was released just last week um the first volume was was really great and i'm excited to sort of learn a bit more about that particular book specifically so well, thank you yeah I, I couldn't be happier with the way it turned out yeah it, it was great we talked actually last year um a bit before before it reached publication um and so it was sort of in a bit of limbo at that point when we when we last talked. So it was great to sort of see this work come to light and be visible and, and in the market um, just because it didn't have the easiest path to publication. No, it was about a year from the time I actually, you know, was approved to the time where uh, it actually issue number one came out, which I've never had before. I never had that long a delay between writing a thing and getting it actually published. And is that with Ahoy directly, your your publisher? No, that that it's including the time of beginning with uh, with Vertigo, right? Because originally, you know, it was approved with Vertigo, and I was writing the issues, uh, you know, in the, the like spring of I think 2018, if I remember correctly, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and and the and then it kept getting pushed back because of the controversy, and you know, they wanted and they wanted to release it with like this, you know, with a wave of other Vertigo titles. And then the ended up getting, you know, we have to like take it away from Vertigo and go to the hoist. So there's just all these delays. So to finally have it out so people can actually read it. Because so there's about a year, uh, a over a year, there was about a year and a half where between the, the, the time of it being announced and, you know, uh, and it actually coming out in uh, like issue number one actually dropping. Yeah, yeah, that's a long development time. What is typical in in the comic market for you and your experience? Usually about five, six months. Okay, from from pitch to like the first issue hitting. From the time where it's been greenlit to the time it actually starts hitting the the shelf. Gotcha, gotcha. And to sort of elaborate for some of the listeners that might know that not know the controversy that we were referring to, there you actually got some blowback because. News of the series, someone got wind of it and and it got passed around in conservative media, and then there was a petition, and that's which garnered a lot of signatures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically, uh, well, initially it was announced in July at San Diego Comic Con a couple mm -hmm. years ago, and there wasn't much of a reaction to it, positive or negative. It was just kind of like okay, but then in December, you know. Because we were planning like a, originally like a, a release in early 2019, I believe, and but then like in December, the uh, like Fox News uh, got a hold of it. I I think it was maybe the sort of thing where you know the Mueller commission was, and, I, and actually I think this was actually December 2018. Mm -hmm. This happened, like the the Mueller commission was coming out, and I think it was kind of a one of these things where Fox news didn't want to actually report on the actual news. Cause all of it looked bad for them. Uh, so they, when that happens and I don't know if you have any Fox news viewers out there, but when that happens, typically what they do is they reach for these culture war stories, things mm -hmm. that are sort of like maybe not necessarily topical, but that will serve to get their viewers up in the lather and get them angry and therefore getting them to sort of like rally around, Trump or whatever their cause celeb is without questioning it too much. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to be the culture war story once where it's like, did you know that they're making a comic book 
about Jesus Christ and a superhero, and nobody really knew anything about the comic book because uh, they no you know no nobody other than myself had you know actually read the scripts, which sort of I think gave them license to sort of make up whatever they wanted about. It. So they made it up like it was this like really blasphemous sort of like uh, re- insulting mockery of of Christ and Christianity. It sort of made the rounds through conservative media from there, resulting in, as you mentioned, a um, petition campaign, which ended up getting uh, about 500,000 signatures, all of which generated a uh, an angry email that went directly to my publisher. <laughs> and so, like, I, you know, I, I talked, it was uh, Dan DiDio at DC was, was, was the publisher, mm-hmm. and he didn't realize what was happening until he got about 130,000 of these emails. Oh, my gosh. So he said, uh, well, the next time you, you come down, down to DC headquarters. I'm going to, I'm going to make you clean out my inbox. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. But you know, and it's the kind of thing where it looks like on the face of it, you've got all these angry villagers with torches and pitchforks storming the castle. When in reality, you know, it's like, you know, it takes a signing the petition takes about three seconds to to click on it. So, you know, you get one woman in Krakow, Poland, you know, another person in, you know, like uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, somebody else in, you know, uh, Moscow, Russia. It's it's not like a throng of angry villagers so much as like some sad person at home alone with nothing better to do, just making a (laughs) click on their mouse. And right. instantly forgetting about it. And I think that they, they, they sort of realized this, that like, oh, it's, you know, this sort of online fury is easy to manufacture and it doesn't really mean a lot, especially if, you know, it's not, if, if it's making, if it's making the national media rounds, then it's probably 99% of the people who are signing this petition or, or outraged by it aren't really in the, aren't really comic book fans to begin with. Right. Yeah. It's just the, the general, the general idea on its face based on right. at th- 30 second. They're angry enough to like spend five seconds clicking a petition. You know? Right. Who knows how angry they are beyond that point. Right. It's like right wing slacktivism. Yeah. Right. right. And, um, part of the problem being with being published by a, uh, company that's owned by a major corporation that's selling, you know, lunch pails and t-shirts is that they do actually have to worry about people who are not necessarily comic book buyers. Right. Yeah. These do people do represent a large, I mean, everyone is a, a potentially a consumer of like, you know, um, uh, justice league movie or, you know, like a Batman t-shirt. So they have to worry about offending pretty much everybody. So, um, I, I think to your point, like these aren't people that, that knew because they, they sure as hell didn't know about Preacher. Yeah. Which is on the same imprint. And it was pretty um, much manufactured outrage, you know, right. especially because it was coming out of Vertigo, which is sort of the imprint for uh, this is not, you know, it's sort of like Pontius Pilate washing his hands of, you know, <laughs> right. Christ. it's like DC washing their hands saying this is not the normal DC fair. This is a separate imprint. Don't don't at me because you read something in Vertigo that you didn't like. Uh, it's the whole point, the whole raison d'etre of Vertigo is to sort of like do the stuff that they, they normally wouldn't be able to do on the, on the DC main line. But, you know, I think add to that controversy, the fact that there was like all this sort of executive change at the top of DC, it was just a bad time to stand out like that. It was a bad time. Nobody wanted to get called into the principal's office. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure that an already risk averse big corporation is probably more on edge. Right. When people are getting laid off and, you know, executives are in flux and there's a new president and, you know, there's all this stuff. So the, the timing was just really bad. And then add to that the controversy. But, right. um, so I, I, I just kind of had a frank conversation with DC cause they, they were, they were probably going to, they weren't dropping it per se. They, but they wanted to keep delaying it and to like make all kinds of changes to make it, you know, less inflammatory. So I, so we just, they just said, well, you know, you know, we, we hate to, to see this change because you know we think it's a we believe in the project. Um, have you considered if if you wanted to, you could ask us to give you the rights back and we would do it. So I said, yes, please. That's great. 
and they were very nice about it. They're, they're, you know, I still work with DC on, on a lot of projects and they're, they're really great to work with. And, uh, I thought the way they handled it, you know, which I totally understand their perspective being, you know, owned by Warner brothers and a major corporation and, and having to like hue to this sort of mass consumption in a way that smaller companies do not, mm. it, it by nature makes them a little less daring, uh, so this is just maybe never the right project for them in the first place. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, I, I, I totally give them credit for taking a chance on this, this project, uh, that, that would have, that, you know, that, that was kind of edgy and maybe outside their normal fare. It was just maybe, uh, like at, at, at the end, probably like, like a, a snake trying to swallow an elephant. <laughs> Yeah, but they were very gracious. They gave me the rights back, and they let me keep the money they'd pay me to write it. And they, um, and one of the reasons, and then I, t- I took it to Ahoy. Um, one of the main reasons being that that they are kind of the opposite of DC in that sense that they're a very small company. So to them, any publicity is good publicity. Mm-hmm. You know, they're a, a, they're like a controversy. Well, yes, please. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's great again that you found a a new home for the story. Because I really enjoy it. I, I, I really enjoyed reading it as it was coming out. And just to sort of close out this this preface about the controversy and everything, what is the elevator pitch of this controversial story that you're telling in Second Coming? I don't remember exactly what I actually used as my elevator pitch. I know that I it came when I was pitching several uh, ideas for a Superman comic to Dan DiDio and he, he hated all of them. Basically he's like, no, that's been done. That's been done. We already, that happened in 1963. And then this is the last idea I had. And I, I was, I, I just had it at sort of the bottom of my bag. I, I was hoping I'd, you know, not to bring it up because I thought they would just laugh me out of the meeting. So I said, well, there is one more and it's, you know, it's about Jesus Christ sharing uh, an apartment with Superman and them sort of like looking at the world from two opposite angles and he said, well, that's not been done before. He's like, but I get death threats every, you know, when Superman refuses to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So uh, make it a non-Superman hero and I will green light this as a, as a Vertigo property. So I, that's basically how I, how I pitched it. And um, it really was the combination of two ideas. I wanted to write, I had a comic idea for a Superman or all-powerful superhero who begins to sort of realize just how limited he is, like just how few problems that facing the human race can actually be solved by, you know, being able to like drop kick somebody into a volcano or, you know, uh, punch a mountain in the, you know, in the face. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, and, and also I wanted to do a, a, a comic about Jesus Christ returning to earth and uh, being sort of appalled, but what, what's been done with his legacy. Mm-hmm. And I, it occurred to me at some point that these are two sides of the same coin, that it's one sort of realizing the futility of physical force and punishment as a way to keep the human race in line. And it's about the other sort of bemoaning the fact that uh, after 2000 years, physical force and bribery are sort of the only sort of tricks we've come up with to making ourselves behave decently and and trying to like see if he can create an avenue by which we solve our mutual problems with empathy and trust so it occurred to me that this would be a good sort of like um tango and cash sort of buddy cop story (laughs) yeah it, it works like it is very very interesting to see sort of within the comics medium which relies so much on huge fight scenes and everything in order to convey conflict resolution. That's sort of the whole point, right? Yeah. Of, of superhero comics in particular is that it's, and it's usually the most even movies or comics. It's usually the most boring part because it's happened. It's their one sort of thing. That's the cliche that that's at the center of all of them is that, you know, eventually they're all going to fight it out and mm-hmm. you know, the, the good guy is going to prevail uh, you know, so basically the good is just, you know, the, what makes it the good is the fact that it's able to use violence just a little more effectively right. than, than the evil people. <laughs> and I, I love how in the first, um, in the first issue, God is like, okay, I'm going to send Jesus down, send my son down and, uh, living with 
Sunstar, which is the name of the of the superhero character, can live with him and sort of toughen him up a little bit. And then he he goes on basically a ride along with Sunstar, uh, who is stopping like counterfeit people that are counterfeiting like Pokemon style cards. Yeah. <laughs> Intellectual property theft, huge problem. <laughs> yeah, and then he, and then he just proceeds to just beat the shit out of people and throw them yeah, out guys the window, are like killing themselves, <laughs> like taking cyanide tablets rather than taking in, you know, to protect their their illegal Pokemon card trade. And yeah, he's just like smashing people to pieces and throwing them out windows. And this is a, sort of Christ's reintroduction to the world after two thousand years, right? And then, and then. Then he comes outside to see his pile of bad guys, and and he asks Jesus, where'd they all go? And he said, I healed them. It's sort of like the um, Jesus is getting uh, Sunstar to sort of like question the causality of mm-hmm. of the people. Like like most people, there's there's not nearly so much evil in the world as there is hunger. Like most people who do bad things do it because they're they're trying to medicate or they're trying to uh, fill a need that they have that. Could they could not fill otherwise? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's justified per se, uh, or that they that there aren't bad people in the world. I'm just saying that most evil is a is a um, net result of our in the fact that we as a society have taken care of people inadequately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk uh, a little bit about how you characterize God, or you know, Jesus's dad. <laughs> God, you don't, you, you just call him God. There's no reference to him really. Jesus calls him my, uh, dad. My, my dad or my father. Daddy or, yeah, right. something like, yeah. Yeah, but, but generally throughout he's just referred to as God. Um, there's not necessarily like some Trinitarian thing happening in this, but, but the way in which you sort of portray him is he's, yeah, capricious and, uh, short tempered and foul mouthed and, and all yeah, these things. I, it's, you know, I tried to be biblically, consistent you know that's, that's way he's portrayed much of the old testament not always i mean there are books of the old testament that have uh you know more uh you know portray him more I, I think it's the elohimist uh interpretation where he's more sort of an abstract force of nature that cannot be really defined but for the most part you know he's like you know your 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 uncle with the with the drinking problem or you know <laughs> some guy who throws temper tantrums you know at the slightest provocation right you know he's like he's like joe biden at like a, a rally stop <laughs> you know, start a random argument some some lady in the back of the theater barely remembering the declaration of independence oh god <laughs> sorry we could go down that segue but let's stay focused <laughs> <laughs> this is sort of the the uh, the backdrop in which jesus decides he's going to give it the old college try um, and like go down and, and spend time with, with people. Do you think that, that within the context of your story, Jesus is sort of like making a referendum on, on like how his, his dad set up the world? Yeah. I think that, you know, like, like all kids are, you know, we are all sort of responses to the shortcomings of the world created by our parents. And I think that's why you see like styles of, child raising change pretty much from generation to generation. Like my generation, you know, Gen X, it's like our, our, we were all kind of like latchkey kids, you know, it's like your parents were, even if your, your parents were home, they were like, go outside. I don't want to even see you until dinner time. So you were just mm-hmm. out there doing God knows what. And, you know, as long as you came back alive for, you know, dinner, <laughs> everything was fine. Yeah. And I, I think that as a result, most people in my generation felt kind of cynical about, you know, our, our families or, you know, we felt like, uh, uh, sort of, sort of abandoned and, uh, jaded and we didn't really have a lot of closeness to our parents. And so, uh, 
when it became our turn to have kids, we became helicopter parents. We're like, got you know, our up in their shit every little minute of the day, you know, making <laughs> sure, you know, that they're able that they're riding their bikes and not falling off, or we're at every soccer practice or whatever, um, which is the other extreme. And so I'm sure that these you know, these kids that we've raised, you know, when it comes time to, for them to have kids are probably going to be so f- annoyed with uh, the helicopter parenting. They're probably going to go back to our parents mode of sort of hands off, you know, free range. Yeah. Parenting. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we're all sort of referendums on the, the generation we came from. Right. Yeah. One of the terms you just used was latchkey kid. And that's in different scenes. That's, that's how Jesus his own childhood, so to speak. Uh, that's how he presents himself, really. Yeah. And in fact, the church he ends up creating is Church of Jesus Christ Latchkey Kid. <laughs> because it's about how when he was, you know, uh, he'd been left alone for millennia while God was off dealing with the problems of the human race and of the earth and trying to, like, keep us all from, like, going off the deep end and killing and enslaving each other unsuccessfully for the most part. <laughs> and, and then until he got so disgusted, he left. And then Jesus is like, well, then I've got to go down. Cause you know, if, if you're not going to be there to help these people, to keep them from killing them, each other, then I've got to go warn them that they're on their own now and that they need to get from each other what they used to expect from you. And that's basically my interpretation of the gospel, that mm. this is what Christ came to do, is to inspire divinity within people, not to necessarily look to God to give them rules so that they, you know, if they follow these rules, they will they will be okay. But to say, no, you've actually got to, the, the, the rules aren't enough to keep you in line. What you really need to do is change your heart and just become genuinely good people. Mm-hmm. Do you see that reflected in any any expressions of Christianity, like in the real world at this point, like that particular type of? Yeah, I see it, but I think it's 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 really doesn't exist in the institutions of Christianity. I think it's more individual Christians, because mm-hmm. uh, I think the the institutions of Christianity lend themselves overwhelmingly to the other interpretation, where it's like, because this is what their institutions are usually built to do. It's like if you follow our bylaws and you you know give us money, you can pretty much you've you've bought your way into heaven and now you can get away with whatever you want because you're on the right team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that dates back to you know once you know Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire because it was a very strange marriage of philosophies because you know the uh, Christ basically came to earth during the Roman occupation. And a lot of his teachings are about how to live under the occupation of somebody who is, is like Supreme and can use violence against you. And you cannot really use violence to free yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like, if you try to fight the Romans, they're just going to kill you. If you, you know, you, you succumb to their bribery, they're just sort of enslave you. Uh, Really all you can do to get out from underneath the Roman thumb is to sort of drop out to um, refuse to be bribed by them, not care about the material things of this world, and to not be afraid when they threaten to punish you, but just sort of to like live as if you are already in the kingdom of God. That was his advice to pretty much everybody who asked, like sell everything and follow me, you know, or, or you know, uh, trust God to provide like as, like he does for the uh, birds, and the lilies of the field. Uh, he was basically telling people that the way you drive an empire crazy is not, is by not playing the rules. It's not by, and if you raise up arms and, you know, you form your own army, you're kind of playing by the rules that the empire has, you know, is used to playing by. They know what to do about that. Mm -hmm. But if you just stop caring about the material wealth that they can offer you or playing by the rules they can impose on you, they have no idea what to do about that. And that's the scariest thing an empire can can imagine. And so that was the philosophy of Christ. But how do you make that work for um, actually an empire's benefit? Like once the Roman Empire actually made Christianity the, the official religion of the empire, it's like how do you take a guy whose whole philosophy is about how getting out from underneath the thumb of an empire and making them work for that very empire. Mm -hmm. And the only way to really do it is to say, well, you know, the, 
you know, to turn it into sort of a cult of personality. Well, you know, if you believe in Christ, then you'll get eternal life. And, you know, you, you, you're also eligible for all these other benefits and miracles. And, uh, and, you know, we'll have people come by and check on you. And, you know, it, it's, it's really about turning this personal message of redemption into sort of more of an institutional sort of pyramid scheme. (laughs) And, and that's sort of how they made it work for, uh, made Christianity work for major institutions like church and state. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that to this day, that's primarily what Christian institutions are good at doing is providing for the institutions themselves, getting people to play by their rules in exchange for, you know, some of the promises of eternal life and, uh, you know, and, and the goodies you get from, from, from being part of a large team, uh, but not really answering those individual problems of feeling inadequate and and oppressed by the world around you Mm -hmm. because they're more interested in doing the oppressing. Right. I'm not going to disagree with any of that. I think that that's <laughs> that that's all just a, a a very good encapsulation of of a lot of the the issues within institutionalized religion as well as just the history of Christianity itself and how it's departed from what is presented within the gospel and the gospel texts, not the gospel as as what is actually taught. Yeah. One thing that's kind of interesting about, you know, how the, the Bible was created was that, you know, they, when they, the, uh, when it became the official religion of the Roman empire, they, they, they decided, well, now we need one sort of canonical Bible because before then they just sort of, every church just sort of had their own, you know, lists of books that they read in church services, uh, some of which were read in other church, some churches, but not in others. So when they were trying to come up with the one canonical Bible, they basically, sent uh, a list to all 50 bishops. They said, we want you to make three lists. We want you to make one of like, this is canon and unquestionably this has to be in any Bible. Uh, another one where it's like, well, this is more on iffy uh, warrants possible inclusion, but, but I can't say for sure. And then the third one was just like, this is batshit crazy. And under no circumstances should this be included in a Bible in only one book of the Bible. Uh, that that made it into the Bible landed on any of the bishops batshit crazy list. And can you guess which one it was? <laughs> uh, batshit crazy. Uh, I mean, Revelation is pretty batshit crazy. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> the Revelation book like sh- showed up on several of the bishops batshit crazy list. But the reason why I ended up making it into the Bible was because not only the fact that it like actually has like a, like an ending provides an ending to the story of not only the Bible, but of, human civilization, but mm-hmm. also because it allows them, it, it provides the church with authority. It says, you know, this is what's going to happen to anybody who is a, a heretic or anybody who uh, ch- tries to change what we're saying now. The, you know, the, these are the false prophets. This is the anti, you are the antichrist and, and you will be, be ultimately cast into the lake of fire. So that book was included, even though everybody kind of knew it was a little nutty, was included because it was the one that put the institutional stamp of uh, authority on the Christian religion. Yeah. <sighs> fun times, fun times. Uh, yeah, I remember reading Reza Aslan's book, Zealot. I don't know. Uh-huh. Have you, I don't yeah. know if you read that one. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, I love Zealot. Yeah, so one, one of the things that, that he talks about uh, in there is about the sort of development just around early church leadership. And you actually sort of hinted this in an in interaction that you have Jesus have with a, a street preacher <laughs> where the, where Jesus is coming out of a gay bar where he just had, or uh, some sort of gay restaurant. It's got, yeah, it was a gay bar. He didn't yeah. know it was a gay bar. Right. And he, and, and your Jesus would have called Hail Mary's. So you know, <laughs> it reminded him of home. Right. And so this street preacher comes up and says, this is a love confrontation. <laughs> and then, and then yeah, tries love to, confrontation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then starts talking about Paul and Jesus is like, who the hell is Paul? I don't know anybody named Paul. I told Peter and I told James, but I don't know anyone named Paul. Yeah. It, it's very much a reference to the fact that the um, new Testament is largely an argument between Paul's interpretation and the interpretation of James 
which uh, Peter was also a party to. And it's weird that the argument was kind of settled in favor of Paul, who says you don't really need to do good things to, you know, be a Christian. You just sort of need to be on the right team. Mm-hmm. And that's good enough. And Paul won the day, despite the fact that he never even knew Jesus, never met him. Right. And, you know, James was like his brother. So if there's anyone who should win the argument about this is what Christ says and this is what he means. And I think Rez Aslan makes this point in his book. It should be the guy who, you know, shared bunk beds with him. Right. The, the guy who you know, knew him <laughs> better than anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's just sort of crazy how lost or obscured or obfuscated that is to the great majority of Christians in the world. Uh, just that, that 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 is just something that's that's blended into history. Yeah, well, most Christians, I mean, don't really, not only do they not know the Bible, they don't really know how it was made. So to them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one book is as canonical as another. And, uh, you know, it, and their interpretation that's offered to them by their megachurch is as canonical as, you know, actually what the, uh, what the, the authors themselves are saying. So mm-hmm. the they're like two or three steps away removed from the reality of what Christ was actually saying. They're not really uh, basing their faith on what Christ said. They're basing their faith based upon what their um, chosen religious leader is saying based upon, you know, the writings of other sort of uh, presumably Protestant fundamentalist thinkers from hundreds of years ago who are basing it upon, you know, Martin Luther and then who is, basing it on, you know, Paul, who never even met Christ. Mm-hmm. It, it's like if you had to, um, and I thought about this one, so like if you had to like rank the 10 most important figures of uh, Christianity, of, uh, of, uh, Christ, of Christian religion, I think Christ would probably be like number nine or 10. <laughs> There's probably at least eight or nine guys who are uh, yeah. more influential in terms of what modern evangelical Christians believe uh, than, than Christ was. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very, very true. <laughs> oh man. That, that's a pretty interesting experiment. I mean, Luther, Calvin, Augustine. <laughs> yeah. I would probably put Amy Simple McPherson on that list above, <laughs> of Christ. Maybe Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Oh man. Maybe, that's Maybe Guy Fieri. Who knows? <laughs> Mark Driscoll. Yeah. Jeez Louise. (laughs) Let's also talk just about how you sort of build the cosmology of this world. Because I think one of the ways in which you present this with God, the father being this capricious sort of asshole, uh, really. And just, I think he comes off initially as an asshole, but then you realize later that it's, it's not so much. He's an asshole as he, he's, you know, frustrated. He is, uh, he has a deep love for his son, Jesus, and also for the human race, both of which have like sort of deeply disappointed him yeah yeah so so that's that's better and that's a nice callback to your to the title of your other book god is disappointed in you you know um so couching that like when you first see him when you're first introduced to him in in this volume he comes off as a jerk and yeah that's coming from a place of hurt and and disappointment but he sort of lashes out with his anger it sort of makes suffering make sense and in a way also elevates Jesus's ethics that, that he's proposing and the, these sorts of things that, that he thinks humanity should do. And where, where I think that really crystallizes in the book is when God just sort of grabs Sunstar and just teleports him to heaven and he takes him to the food court. And amidst this really funny scene where, where they, are going to these different restaurants that have gone to the great beyond different franchises that are now gone. Sunstar is like, so the, the real answer to why they're suffering in the world. And then God makes this incredible confession that he's just lazy. <laughs> um, yeah. 
he's an idea guy. You know, he, he he's interested in like creating eyeballs or, you know, bodies, but he's not so interested that he'll stick around and make sure they don't get cancer or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that they're not going to get old. It's, it's like once he's, once an idea is, is done enough to where it's no longer interesting to him, he will move on to something else, which I think is probably true of most of us. Right. Yeah. Though when you elevate it to, to the point of Godhood, it's like, okay, so it, that that's a way to sort of understand suffering is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, I'm amazed that like, you know, the philosophers of, you know, the rationalist era and whatnot never really came up with this as an explanation. It's like, all <laughs> like, how can God be good, all good, all knowing and all powerful and there still be evil in the world? It's like, well, maybe he's just sort of lazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he I mean, well, like when you think of other modern uh, expressions of the idea of deities, even within comic books, I'm thinking of Dr. Manhattan, who slowly becomes less and less concerned with human affairs. And like yeah. that Dr. Manhattan coldness isn't there in this character that you have as God. But there is like a sense of remove, which I think all of us sort of feel uh, whenever we're trying to understand the divine. And if we don't feel it all the time, we, we feel it at some point in our lives. If we are religious or pursuing like a religious track in life in some way that that's something you have to butt up against at some point so i don't know it was like sort of cathartic to have god cop to that basically uh and then also have jesus be like okay this is sort of how my dad is how are you going to cope with it (laughs) right Well, I think in a lot of ways, God is sort of the name we give to our own inadequacy. You know, it's like we feel like insignificant and that our our role in the universe is not what it should be. So we attribute these things to God that will make up the difference that that Mm -hmm. God is then what gives us this uh, meaning, what makes up for our our inadequacy that Mm -hmm. allows us to like, you know, if you're an alcoholic to maybe get through another week without drinking. That's a lot of you know, pressure to put on God. And it's also something that, you know, it says more about us than it does about the deity. So, and I think it's, in a way, it's sort of profound, like it it says something good about God and that God is, uh, that whatever he is, whatever a God may be, it's something that we, in some capacity or another, need. Mm. Mm -hmm. In what way? Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, because we're we're all inadequate and alone and uh, isolated from the universe. We all feel alienated. So if not God, we need something to bridge that gap because the, the alternative is too terrifying to contemplate. So God becomes the name we give to that thing, which allows us to feel like we have a place in the universe. Mm-hmm. So similar to like 12 step philosophy where there's a higher, yeah. like a higher power that that's what he is. He's our coping mechanism. If nothing else, mm-hmm. even, you know, it's, uh, if, um, I think it was Hobbes who said, if God did not exist, we would need to create him. Uh, I think he meant to, you know, keep us from being naughty but I, I think it's probably true on a more fundamental level. It's just to keep us from feeling uh, inadequate. Mm. And so, I don't think we necessarily need the Christian God for that or, you know, even really a deity at all. But I do think that we need something to uh, to medicate us from our, the sense of our own alienation mm. and that whatever that is that tends to be what we imbue with the powers that traditionally people have given to gods. So do you think that that has any, anything necessarily even to do with like uh, theism or is it just sort of something, some sort of ideal that is operates as a receptacle or a representation of that? I think it's helpful if uh, you think about God sort of in reverse, like it's not that God is out there and what is he like and what is, you know, what is he about? What's he doing? Mm-hmm. It's more about, well, what are we about? What are, what do we need and what mm-hmm. are we doing? And what, what, what do we need from the universe to feel like we belong? And I think once you ask yourself those questions and you find the, the answers going that way, what you find is, is divinity, but you find a divinity in, in a way that is, is meaningful to you as opposed to like, 
uh, you know, like a, a church that you grew up in, they have one set of answers about what God is and what God does. And, you know, it, and it, and it might be a set of answers that really works for some people that really makes them feel connected to the universe and, and gives their life meaning. But for another person in that church, it might, you know, not, not be meaningful at all. And, but if they're a member of that church, they sort of have to pretend like it is. So it's sort of like if you're going to the, um, if you're going to, uh, the pharmacy, you know, and they're just giving out the same medication to everybody, mm-hmm. you know, for the people that do have glaucoma, the, the glaucoma prescription they're handing out is terrific. This is just what I needed, but it's a little specious to assume that because it works for you, that this glaucoma medication is going to be what heals everybody, regardless of what their problem is. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the problem is that we've been going to the same pharmacy, getting the same pills, you know, it's, it's like there's, you know, Christianity, like there's th- three major li- religions or, or uh, you know, or say like, like, like Buddhism, Christianity and Islam collectively uh, make up about 4 billion believers on the planet, most of the planet. It's like, what are the chances that these three medications are, are good for like over half the world's problems? Mm-hmm. Probably not that good. Uh, but there's so there's a lot of people being mismedicated. And the fact that the medication works for some people, you know, makes them blind to the fact that it might not work for others. Right. And then there's other people. And I think these people are, are, are usually the people who end up becoming sort of like, you know, the um, the Westboro Baptist Church people or the, um, you know, the, the, the really dark fundamentalists. Uh, the medication doesn't work at all for them and it just making them miserable. But they think that if if they have to be miserable, that you should, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like thinking of it that way. And I think a lot of people that come from sort of evangelical backgrounds, like listeners to this show, were probably taught that that is like just anathema to the proper understanding of God, you know, is that yeah, because that seems like some hippy dippy roll your own spirituality. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but but I mean the other analogy that you were using was like was medication and medi- yeah. and medication as as an analogy the the desire now within that within that field is to get to hyper individualized care and yeah. and like do the thing that's right for your body and for your psyche. Yeah, the key to I think a better planet and to happier people is for you to find the medication that works for you not to pretend to be happy with the medication you were given mm-hmm. and not to impose those medications. Yeah. Or on... to assume that because it worked for you, that it, this is uh, that everybody should be on Zoloft or whatever. But I think this is how you, you get over the fact that, that the institutions uh, abuse people in a way that, you know, Christ had never intended. It's like, if you reverse the order of causality where the, we do not exist to serve these institutions, but they exist to serve us. Mm-hmm. then you you deprive them of all their power, which I think was ultimately what Christ was trying to do in his time on earth. He's, he's like, well, how do we deprive the institutions like the Roman Empire or like the Sanhedrin of their power? And the answer is by forming our own direct connection to God and not relying upon them to be that intermediary, not going to the pharmacy uh, and just taking whatever they have on hand. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I want to talk uh, also about the devil in your story. What perspectives does does he bring to the story that you're telling in, in Second Coming? And what is his sort of role in the, the, the dynamic between Jesus and God and really just in general? Like, we see him interact with a handful of characters, um, but I'm curious what uh, your perspective is on, on what his role is in this story. Well, I, I got the idea for that iteration of Satan uh, when I was working on uh, my book Apocrypha Now, which is about uh, the, the Jewish Midrash and the Gnostic Gospels and other sort of non-canonical Jewish and Christian writings. Uh, and I came across a book called The, the Acts of Bartholomew, uh, which actually describes a meeting between Satan and Christ and his disciples. Christ basically arranges this meeting between his disciples and, and the devil. 
And it actually surprisingly kind of por- portrays the devil in a somewhat sympathetic light because you know he's he's brought up in chains from hell, and the, the disciples are besides themselves with terror. This beast that's been brought up from hell, and then but then you know the devil's point is that like well look I was you know Christ's I was God's number one angel. I was, you know, he made me out of fire and I was beautiful and splendid and he left me in charge of the earth and, you know, and I was, you know, doing a good job for him and I, and I loved working for him. And then he comes to me one day and says, I've created these two humans and you're going to be serving them. And he made them out of mud and it, it was too much. It was a bridge too far for, for Satan who kind of thought he was Christ's best friend. It'd be like if you were working at a job that you liked and you got along really well with your boss, and then he suddenly shows up with somebody new who who's, it's their first day, and he's like, "I want you to train this person. They're going to be your boss." <laughs> That's yeah. kind of what Satan felt like, and <laughs> and, it, and it's like I never I never felt like I really understood Satan's motivation until I read this this Gnostic gospel. I was like, "Oh my God, that's totally that totally makes sense." And that's why he tried to overthrow God, admittedly not a good idea. And so that was kind of really informed my perspective of Satan is that he's not just some like evil for the sake of evil, you know, supervillain. He's a guy who himself feels aggrieved and in a moment of weakness and jealousy tried to do the unthinkable and now just wants to go back to the way things were. Mm hmm. And yeah, and you you present that as just this this longing that just goes sort of unfulfilled, right? I mean, like yeah, in a way, he suffers from the same problem we all do. Is like he feels alienated from from God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most people who come from evangelical backgrounds just had this idea of of Satan as this sort of boogeyman who's trying to corrupt you. Yeah, he's like a wrestling villain or something. He's <laughs> this guy who comes out. You know, on right. a motorcycle, it just starts calling everybody out and, like, you know, hits somebody with the metal chair when they're not looking. He's just sort of the embodiment of everything going wrong in your life. Right. Yeah. But th- then there's these other sort of modern interpretations of him as, like, this bastion of individualism or even just sort of he just made his will known and it conflicted with God. Thinking of, like, the Lucifer from from like Neil Gaiman's run on Sandman and everything else that Mike Carey did afterwards of it's like, I never made any of you come here. That's I never, that that's one of the lines in the Sandman run. Where, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like how it was brilliant. Yeah. How hell was treated as like where people go to punish themselves. Yeah. Where they go because they feel like they need to expunge themselves of guilt. They accrued on earth. Right. But he never forced any of them to, to go or to stay. Yeah. He's a, just sort of this, like, well, all of a sudden, well, I've become the symbol to these people and I never really asked for this. Mm. I, I loved the scene with God just meeting Satan and in, in a diner to try to, to try to work it out. Yeah. It's sort of like, um, you know, they, they meet in Berlin, which of course is symbolic because it's where, you know, spies between East and West used to meet to discuss, you know, how to resolve these sort of tangled knots that, you know, in the Cold War that would hopefully result in, you know, nuclear de-escalation or, you know, like, like it was about the Cold War, how, how they, where they learned to sort of get along together. They learned to sort of coexist. So as a symbolic meaning that, that Christ or that, that God, the Father and um, Satan are meeting there. And it is sort of like, you know, that's where we learn about their different perspectives about what happened. Uh, when Satan tried to overthrow God. Mm-hmm. Going back to the first the first issue, you have Jesus say, people don't believe in God so much as they hope for a witness to their suffering. And the world isn't saved by bribery, by violence, by power. It's saved by being brave enough not to be intimidated, by being honest enough not to be bribed. And when we fail, it is saved one act of forgiveness at a time. I really love how that sort of encapsulates the all these different themes that that you present within within the book, um, I want to focus in on and again, sort of this seeing a witness as suffering. And and we've we've already talked in at length a little bit about what God represents for us, but in the ways in which this story sort of reflects our lived experience of just wanting some sort of acknowledgement that sometimes this like shit gets hard, and just having that sort of witness what. Why, why is that an important 
theme for you? Well, I think that we want to know that we're that this this means something that we're not suffering in vain and that we're not suffering alone. And I think that's the one of the the good roles that religion has played in people's lives and the way in which it, it, religion can still the roles religions can still play in people's lives and be a, a positive force in the world is by reassuring the people that we see that you're suffering and you're not alone and we will all carry this burden together. And I think that's what's the value of, of churches and organizations and institutions mm-hmm. uh, based on faith is that they provide this sort of reassurance. They provide this sort of witness to your suffering and to the, the value of religion is to be found there, not necessarily in, you know, the other impositions they put on you need to believe these 12 tenets or you know you're going to hell or you know the other sorts of things that that institutions have created in order to make sure that we're serving them my favorite line when Jesus is pastoring and sort of consoling Sunstar after he made a big mistake. And he's like, you're not the first person to have an intense experience with God that didn't last. And I think that's just, just brilliant. Thanks. Yeah. I was, I was really writing that about myself and I was just like, this is what I wish I could tell myself, you know, back when I was originally sort of losing my faith. This is like my, my pep talk. <laughs> yeah. And to see like this, this humble Christ figure, consoling a a superhero there's a lot to that imagery and what's it like to work in this sort of comic medium and and how was it working with your other collaborators like Richard Pace and and others to bring this story to life in this medium where you can accomplish a lot through the medium and relying on their visual storytelling as well as your script well yeah the the thing that really attracts me to comics as a medium in general is that it is a visual medium, but it's, but unlike television or, or movies, uh, it's a relatively low cost visual medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't invest nearly as much money in producing a comic book as they do like a TV show or a, or a movie. As a result, there's a lot less oversight. So you can be a little more experimental. You can tell stories that wouldn't necessarily get the mass following you would need to justify a, you know, a, a major, you know, motion picture or, you know, a, a um, TV series that uh, would be released on a network. Now, with streaming services and independent movies, of course, that's a lot of that is changing. But that's sort of what I've always really liked about comics is that it, there is this added layer of freedom to be experimental, to tell stories that might not translate well elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also it's a little more intimate, you know, it's it you do get a more direct collaboration with your artist, you know, where it's like it's like when we were deciding like how something is going to look or we want to go back and fix something. Uh, it's really just a conversation between two people, maybe three at the most, if you want to bring in the editor or the, the colorist. Uh, so so it's a lot easier to get things done person to person, whereas, you know, if you you're trying to do that. And another visual medium, it usually in, it means the involvement of teams and different layers of communication and has to be run by the, the, the producer. Uh, so I like the experiment, experimentality of the comic medium and also the fact that it's, it's more like a boutique than working in a Sears. You can, you can make changes and do things with a relatively, well, you know, while communicating with just a few people that you know fairly well right yeah that i think that's that's why it works so well is that the the facial expressions that that uh, richard pace provides and all the different visual gags like i really appreciate the way in which you are able to use use humor as like an entry point to make a social very incisive social commentary we're, we're sort of primed for that now after 20 plus years now of like the daily show we're primed as a culture to like, if you're going to hit us with something heavy or meaningful, even not, not even necessarily like heavy and in, in a downer, but just significant Yeah. to give it that spoonful of sugar of, of humor, then provide that. So it really just goes 
goes very well with 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 your capacity as a storyteller, um, which I've appreciated. The first thing I read of yours before I even knew you did comics was God is disappointed in you. With someone like my background, it's you know it's it's <laughs> sort of tailor made uh, for me to enjoy, and to see that married in this medium is is really cool. Um, well, thanks. Yeah, I, um, it, it just feels like the natural to me. It just feels like this is the the frequency my 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 brain resonates on, and this is the way I would like to would like to hear about these things. I I, I feel like in a way, everything. I'm writing about whether it's God is disappointing you and retelling the Bible or, you know, it's, it's writing about superheroes or whatnot. I like to feel like it's a conversation between just two people at a bar. And this is the way I would talk to somebody in a bar. This is the sort of the way we would, we would tell, talk, tell a story to each other, you know, you know, just two people like in a room. And to me, that's always the most meaningful because this is about what it's not you trying to work within a style or, or trying to work within a genre. It's just you putting, you know, your, your quirky perspective on the world on the line in as blunt a way as possible. And to me, that's what humor is. It's just being as blunt as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To close out, I'd, I'd really like to talk about the letters pages that, that you had in, in the floppies or the single issues. Uh, that that came out of of the book because you actually featured a lot of feedback and since we started the conversation talking about the initial reaction and this negative push what has the response been that's made its way to you since you've started publishing this book it's weird but the response you know was overwhelmingly negative before it came out and then after it came out it was became overwhelmingly positive which I find really vindicating because it's like, well, uh, people hated it because they didn't know what it was trying to do. And then once they actually got a chance to read it, then they saw that, you know, I was not actually mocking Christ, that I was actually just struggling with my own ideas about the nature of Christian faith and about how to heal a world in which, you know, violence and bribery has largely brought it to the, the brink of destruction. And I think once people saw the sincerity and they realized it wasn't just like, you know, a cheap gag at the expense of Christ or Christians, the, the, the tone of the response immediately changed. And I've had conversations with people who are still not on board at all with the theology I present Mm -hmm. in the comic, but they are usually very polite and understanding of what I'm trying to do. And I think that's where we find our common ground is it's like, they might not agree with me, but they they don't feel like I am my, they don't feel like my intentions are themselves uh, harmful. Right. Yeah. Not, there's not this presumption. It's not that mean. <laughs> yeah. It's not mean. And it's not like you're trying to convert other people and say, this is the one true <laughs> Christianity or something. As I write in my, you know, uh, author's note, it's, it, I'm not trying to mock the faith of millions. I'm just trying to bring something new into the world. Mm hmm. Can you say anything about the next volume or, or what's next for the for the series at this point? Yeah, there will be a next volume, and uh, it's going to uh, I, th- I think be a little more character focused, a little less uh, plot oriented. Because um, the first six issues do sort of feel they sort of felt like a like a like a car chase for me. There's all these things happening, and it's all one after another. And so the the, the next volume we're going to spread things out a little more and and have maybe an issue that just deals with you know, Sunstar's origin or, you know, Christ in his attempt to like get disciples. So we're going to do more sort of character focus. I think people have already got the concept of like, like Christ sharing an apartment with Sunstar. There's no point in doing that story over and over again about what it would be like for a superhero to be paired with the son of God. Now we're going to explore their own sort of like lives on earth in greater depth. Mm -hmm. Great. That'll be great. Um, and I look forward to reading that as well. Mark, thank you so much uh, for joining me and, and talking about Second Coming. Uh, where can people find that book and what else do you have on the horizons? Well, I recommend people going to their local comic book store and uh, getting Second Coming volume number one there. It will be available in non-comic book stores, I think like uh, on March 10th. Uh, but I, But why wait? 
you could go into your local comic book store and get one today. Mm-hmm. And uh, additionally, uh, Billionaire Island number one, uh, the first issue of my new comic book uh, about an artificial island where billionaires go to like escape the end of the world, or so they hope. Uh, that comes out tomorrow, or I guess it will be last week by the time this podcast comes out. Mm-hmm. It comes out on March 4th. It will be in stores, in comic book stores. Great. And uh, any other social media or any of that other fun stuff oh, yeah. that people like to plug? <laughs> please, uh, please follow me on Twitter. That's where I post most of my information and you know spoiler panels, panels that I really like and projects that I'm working on. Uh, and I'm at at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S on Twitter. Great. Mark, thank you again so much for joining me and talking about Thanks, Blake. Pleasure as always. Thanks, Blake. Pleasure as always.